do you consider yourself a space lawyer? Well, given that the uh, the ABA doesn't recognize such a designation, um, <laughs> you know, this, this seems to be the old, well, do you call yourself a doctor at a law school because you have a Juris Doctor? episode, I will interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, current, or future employers or clients. Okay, so this is a lawyer's podcast, so that's necessary. Today, uh, on our first episode, I am joined by a friend of mine, someone I have known for about five years now, Chris Hearsey. Hi, my name is uh, Chris Hersey, and uh, I am currently the founder and CEO of the consulting firm OSA Consulting, LLC. I previously ran for Congress as a Democrat in Maryland's 6th Congressional District uh, in 2018. And previous to that, I worked for Bigelow Aerospace, uh, first as corporate counsel and then director of the D.C. office. And it's a pleasure to be here, Nathan. Thank you, Chris. Um, All right. So first question, let's see if this catches on uh, in future episodes. Do you consider yourself a space lawyer? Well, given that the uh, the ABA doesn't recognize such a designation, um, <laughs> uh, I think patents, admiralty, and a few others, uh, you can call yourselves whatever the hell you want. But, um, you know, this, this seems to be the old, well, do you call yourself a doctor at a law school because you have a Juris Doctor? <laughs> I think what it really comes down to at the, at, at the fundamental level is, um, you know, what are you doing with with that moniker? Are you someone that works in government? Are you a government attorney? Are you someone that works in the private sector? Are you a corporate counsel? Are you work for a private foundation? What do you do? And I think that seems to shade, in my experience, how people sort of present themselves either as a space lawyer or not. And... I have found, uh, being in this industry for over 10 years, that I, I look at things a little bit differently. Uh, I don't necessarily would call myself a, a space lawyer, but uh, as someone who is you know, an advocate for developing space in a, in a way that, that makes it uh, economical and, and an ability to develop the solar system economically, and part of that to me, so I've always sort of come mm-hmm. come from it as an economist point of view, and you know, I uh, I wrote a graduate thesis applying law and economics to uh, public international space law, and that's always sort of been my filter. You know, you go ask you know someone maybe at a telecom, you know, they're going to consider themselves a telecom lawyer or a space lawyer, but I think space economist doesn't also ring a bell because you know ring the right bell because it's just like it's almost kind of boring. <laughs> And I know, and I know some very great 
space economists, and some of them also are lawyers. So you know, I think what's really hard about that term is it's it's it can pigeonhole you without pigeonholing you, but also doesn't describe necessarily what part of space are you a part of, and um, uh-huh. it also hides, I think, uh, a deeper understanding um, of of what you could expect a space lawyer to know because. You know, it's not just domestic law in the United States. It's international law. It's laws of other countries. And it's all, you know, it's from some people's perspective, you know, lex specialis is somehow this the special regime. But, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I, I even believe that as far as we understand that term in, in public international law. But more of it's interdisciplinary. It's multidisciplinary. And, th- and that's the problem with space. To distinguish yourself in that way is interesting because other alternatives, you know, no one's, you know, people some say they're environmental lawyer, and we kind of know what that that is. Some people say, you know, I'm um, administrative lawyer. Okay, we kind of know what that is. We have these boundaries, but space doesn't necessarily have these boundaries uh, in the normal concepts of of public ima- imagination, right? I mean, I think you and I both know, and and everyone that would be listening that has been around space law for a long time. If you ask a lay person, what is, you know, have you ever heard of the term space law? They're all probably going to know. And and if they didn't ask you the question and you bring it up, they're going to ask you, what the hell is that? And, you know, in some cases I've heard even worse stories. I've heard stories to uh, something to the degree of, uh, well, that's just jibbery jabbery. It doesn't mean anything. And, uh, you know, those words are, are just all made up and, you know, there's, there's aliens and, you know, then you can completely see where it can go off the rails. But I think it's important, and and I think it's important to, to highlight you know what that means and what that means to other people. So I appreciate you know what you're trying, what you're doing with this podcast. It's really great. Thank you, thank you for the plug yeah. that I don't have to say for myself. Yeah. Perfect. Because you know it, it goes to to the heart of our understanding of the field and and how we would interact. Right. A lot of aerospace in general, and and also government, it's used to stovepiping ideas and processes and things like that. But by and large, generally, space is just an environment. And the fact that lawyers could show up there shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Or the fact that there are rules. Because as long as there are people, you know, there will be problems. There will be issues that needs to be solved. And just as much as you need the entrepreneur to bring you capital, you need the lawyer to defend you. Having said that, you know, I think that there's a, a wider dynamic when you talk about space law because, well, what the hell is the lawyer actually doing, right? Is he in right. court? Is he defending your rights some some other way? Is he doing it, uh, you know, behind in the back room with the other attorneys negotiating the, you know, the the three thousand page contracts? Um, you know, what, what exactly is, is space law? And I think it's, it's important to, to have that perspective because again, you, you asked me and you're going to ask several other guests, I'm sure over, over the next period of time that you're recording, what is space law? And they're probably going to give you a a similar answer each time, but there's always going to be some deviation where you're just going to be like, well, I don't know. Does that fit? Does that make sense? Are we really talking about it from this perspective or that perspective? And that's the problem with space is that you could look at it very narrowly. You could look at it very broadly. And uh, rules in which govern activities 
generally are written very broadly to accommodate all types of activities, but they still are found it necessary, a group of people, or in this case states, to write down some basic rules. And so space law, at least to me, means you know those rules, customs, norms, laws, regulations that govern ac- the activities of states and of individuals, whether they're corporate entities or they're natural persons. And they're all part of an ecosystem that has to operate in an environment that is completely and wholly unnatural and, you know, less than a thousand people, maybe even less than 600 people on this planet that have ever lived have any experience of what it's like to be off the planet in that way. And, and even so, they didn't go very far. Um, you know, a group of us or a group of them, a group of humans went to the moon, right? So, you know, our conception of law is going to change as we venture, venture further and further and further out. And it's interesting for me because I don't necessarily consider space as special as, as maybe others might. And what I mean by special is there are just some arguments I've heard that just make space as either this pristine virgin thing that can never be corrupted um, or it's a, uh, a place, a dumping ground for wishful thinking, uh, wishful ideas about either humanity or what we could expect from people. And so at the very least, I would, if you want to go name calling, I'm a bit of a realist and a pragmatist because again, you can't argue with physics and that's the major barrier to most of space exploration is just basic physics and overcoming the engineering obstacles to be able to have the technology to do the things that people really want to do. And we're only getting more sophisticated and we're only going to seek to do more sophisticated things. So that's why I think it's overall only, uh, an overall natural that we go into space and lots of different actors will go into space, but how we manage that, that race, so to speak, I think is, is, will be the defining moment for space law. Are we going to expand rights or are we going to take more rights away? Can someone, um, can a, can a, an entity, can a private entity that is a national to a state that assigned the rescue and return agreement refuse to help other astronauts in distress? And will they? I think there are some people, yeah, I think that would help, but I do think there will be other people that will not, just like we have people here on earth that will not help. And so that's an interesting thing for law because on one, on one hand, you know, you have duties of care to each other, but you also don't want to put yourself in harm's way. And so that makes it a very complicated question. But I think at the end of the day, for someone who's in a position to make the decision, it's still just going to be, well, does it make sense at the moment? Am I going to put my people at risk or not? And this is where it's going to be interesting because these are critical moments of your rights, whatever rights you think that you have at that settlement could be gone, could be gone. It could have already been gone in a previous agreement. You may want to change your mind, but there's a lot of aspects and a lot of dimensions to to space. And I think we lose sight of the fact in space law, since a lot of things are ambiguous and we can argue around because lawyers argue, but it does get to the, to the issue, to the practicality of, well, who's using space law? Is it governments or private entities? 
And if it turns out that over time, greater private entities are using space law, meaning that they're, they are asking for resolution of disputes on their rights and obligations, then I think that's a good trend overall, as long as there are some court systems or, or some sort of dispute resolution mechanisms to, to do that. But obviously the problem is, is you also want the state to recognize those things because if they're going out of, out of, outside of the traditional court system, you know, that's, that can be a, a problem for the national court to incorporate the decision rules. But again, that's why you have to have fora like Copious, the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, so that their delegates could come and explain to the other people who are representing their countries, this is what we're doing. And this is exactly what happens at the State Department when it comes to at least one aspect of foreign policy, when it, come, when it comes to space policy. And they have those conversations and they will bring people from our departments of transportation and commerce and the like, and they'll go and they'll have their presentations and they'll have their conversation. And the next thing you know, a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Let's, let's, let's move along in those, that, fa- that fashion. You have talked about uh, an economic background not just to space, but to world history and human conflict. You've talked about a physics background and, you know, you could define physics as a study of conflicts, right? Conflicts between mass uh, and energy. How, I want to ask you, how did you get to this point in your life? When, if you could trace back, when did you start accumulating these disciplines um, that you now apply to your understanding of space law? And when along that path of your life did it actually become, I'm going to be a lawyer and funnel funnel your approach through that? I guess, let me just think where should, you know, it's always interesting where you start the story can always determine where you end up. But um, I was never, I never planned to, end up where I am today. That wasn't what I was thinking. What I was thinking when I was younger, and I think it was about when I was about 12, 13 years old, um, I decided I wanted to be a physicist. And as I got into high school, I decided I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And I moved along that way, uh, that path for some time. And when I was in high school, my junior and senior year, I believe, I was taking like AP physics and all that, but I was also doing um, mock trial, high school mock trial. And for, I remember for two years straight, I was <laughs> for some reason I kept getting put on the defense team. But <laughs> I, I distinctly remember, uh, and I had some some tragedy when when I was younger. Um, but I distinctly remember having an interest in, in the law, partly because my father was uh, a former um, police officer. I had cousins that were police officers. I had uh, an uncle that was a police officer. Uh, I had a lot of family members that were in law enforcement, so it, it was generally around. But I always was gravitated towards science for one reason or another. I don't know if that was conscious or not, but I do distinctly remember having a, there's a point where I had to, I felt like I had to decide. And, um, my decision to decide, unfortunately coincided with the passing of my the sudden passing of my father. And so when I applied for college initially, 
Um, I, I had difficulty after the fact, even remembering that I was applying because he, he unfortunately died as I was applying for college. And, um, I had completely forgotten about applying and I ended up going, uh, uh, to Europe for, for a little bit and, uh, finding out that I got into one of the schools that I, I got in, I applied to, which I don't recall which schools anymore, which I applied to, but, um, I, I was kind of flabbergasted. I was like, okay, well, I guess I should come back and start college. And so I ended up going to the university of Alaska Fairbanks to start, um, my first, uh, semester, although technically I was a transfer student cause they had community college credit, but, um, I started college, I guess, officially for the first time, uh, in, uh, September of 2001. And when I was there, I was in Alaska and all I wanted to do was, uh, do physics and play hockey. It was the only thing I wanted to do. <laughs> um, Did you apply physics to your play of hockey? Uh, probably subconsciously. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, it, elastic and inelastic, inelastic collisions mostly, but, uh, um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, no. Yeah. And then September 11th happened and that really sort of changed my, my view about, um, just sort of being that scatterbrained scientist or sort of, sort of speak, I guess. Uh, <laughs> And uh, for a variety of reasons, I ended up applying to Temple University uh, in Philadelphia, and I was I was excited um, because I, <laughs> that program actually, in, in hindsight, was more targeted to what I really wanted to do at the time. And so um, I was surprised that I got into the mathematical physics program, which is where I started. And so I did that for a couple of years until my last semester, senior year, where I took a privatization economics course and I did my final presentation on commercial space uh, companies and the deregulation of, uh, of space activities. And what, what year was that? That would have been the spring of 2006. Okay. 2006. I mean, what space companies, what commercial private I'm doing air quotes that you can't see. Space companies were around then because I feel like maybe it hasn't changed that much, but I feel like half of the players are not there and we have a whole new half of players here now, 12 years later. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I think many of, I think there's two, and this is anecdotally I'm saying this, <laughs> but I think there's two cohorts of, of companies. I think, that you can categorize coming out of the 2000s because the ones that are sort of the holdovers from the nineties during the, the whole, we're going to do reusability. Like I uh, was at rocket and Keesler and a few others, but then, you know, oddly enough, it, it just so happens around 2000, you had the formation of big aerospace, technically a blue origin, technically of SpaceX, you know, with all within between 1999, 2003 Virgin was about to be born. Uh, although that's a whole other story. No, but there, yeah, there's certainly been a lot of other companies that have come and gone, but there's a lot more, I think, today than there certainly were in 2006. I, I distinctly remember, you know, certainly talking about SpaceX, Big Little Aerospace, which I ended up working for. Who else was, uh, Blue Origin wasn't, wasn't really a thing, I don't think yet. I think it was still 
kept quiet, I think, by Bezos around that time. There wasn't much being done. But yeah, there were only a few companies, but it, you know, certainly you look at the trend of things and what people were talking about then, they were a lot hopeful. And I think I think that since 2006 and the last, what, 12 years, I think we've seen a huge growth in, in the industry, probably a, a little bit bigger than I think what most would expect. But I think what we're seeing is not so much development or sort of growth of these new entities. I think there's there's a lot of synergism, synergisms Synergies. Synergies. Sorry, it's been a long day. We can turn this into a meme. Yeah, it's our first t-shirt. Yeah, synergies. Yeah, the, the synergies of of the market, right? Because the market itself is so interdependent and, and heterogeneous. You know, you can build a rocket, but what good is that if you don't have a payload? You can build a payload, but what good is that if you don't build a rocket? You got to build them in parallel and they got to try to come together if you want to keep your costs down, which is kind of the ultimate point since they're so expensive to, to manufacture in the first place. So now that we have, I think, to some degree, the, the, the settlement, I think there's foundational elements within the launch market in the United States. I think there are changing elements responding to that internationally. But the trick is, is not, not the damn rockets, but finding the companies that have the payloads, right? find the engine, the mechanisms to get these entities, these commercial and these private entities funding to be able to build up the different architectures that we need to address the almost infinite amount of problems in space that we have to deal with. Big companies, of course, can spend the money to do this and they're already set up to do it, but a lot of these smaller entities can. And, you know, I think we've all, you and I, and, and we know colleagues that do, a lot of startups will come and say, well, we need help, but we can't really pay you. Right. I mean, that's that's kind of the problem with the industry right now is there are a lot of people trained to be space lawyers to do the regulatory and other things, even though, you know, that's not really what I think space lawyers really want to do. They just want to argue about Article 2 or some other things. But, but fundamentally, they're, they're still transaction artists, right? Like we're still pushing the paperwork. We're still making sure people get things done, that the money happens, the payloads arrive on time, that, you know, if there's liability agreements that they're honored and all that kind of stuff. I mean, lawyers do so many, so many different things. And all of that is to support the ecosystem, the economy that exists in space. And you can't have that if it's just the government all the time. Right, so this is why I think it's sort of a natural, natural growth period, and I think we're getting to a growth spurt. People like are on the internet doing all kinds of innovative things, and and not giving a, a damn about what any other politician says, and they're still doing it. And I applaud them, and you know, I I I want to make them work. I want to make it happen, and that's sort of the reason I got into space. And so it's interesting to me to reflect on. Well, it was this our economic argument. Not the scientific argument that that corralled me into the profession I am, the professional I am today, who has somehow been crazy enough to get you know a uh, undergraduate degree in mathematical economics and physics, political science, and two master's degrees and a law degree. <laughs> yeah, so I I got you a little bit off track, but you naturally brought it back around. The economic argument for space. You graduated from Temple with your degree. You finished there in a economics and law seminar. No, so it was it was a privatization economics class. That's all it was. 
So, you know, privatizing toll roads or, or sorry, highways or privatizing the airlines or, you know, deregulation, I think was the old term for it. And now it's privatization, right? I was the only one that picked this topic. And as an aside, the other reason why that was a, a monumental uh, point in time for me, at least in terms of what I do today, when I gave the presentation, I got laughed at by 40 students who didn't believe such a thing existed. They couldn't believe that this would be a presentation because it couldn't, you know, it was a Star Wars, Star Trek, where you got aliens. With, this is not a real thing. Are you talking about aliens? Aliens are going to visit us? We're going to protect yourself from aliens? Like, that's kind of crap. Until the professor, like, got pissed. He stopped the class. He says, you know, he's like, you need to pay attention. Like, this is happening. And so for me, it's almost like double validation to not only have witnessed and seen, you know, the successes of the growth of not only the, the industry, but of space law itself, but also to be there and to be able to, to shape it in the way that I never thought initially I could. But when I was at Temple, I got good advice from a mentor of mine. He told me to move to DC and I did. And I was fortunate enough to get into American University, do a master's program in justice law and society. Uh, so focusing on uh, legal theory, uh, legal philosophy, philosophy of the law. But I got hooked up while at AU into the, the space industry. So my initial, the first initial work I did actually was at the National Air and Space Museum where I did space history. And one of the things I looked at was what were the alternatives to NASA, at least in terms of the design. Everyone knew it was going to be a civilian national space program, but no one knew necessarily what it would look like. And there was a lot of movement to do it this way or that way. Uh, scientists wanted to be of a particular way, but ended up not mattering because it all got it all got uh, settled more or less what it was going to be in November of 1958 with uh, the executive board of, of NACA sort of saying we're going to take we're going to take hold of this idea and sell it to the Eisenhower administration. So that opened my eyes to like how DC you know can work uh, or has worked or could work, and certainly told me a lot about you know what kind of how things can fail at a policy level as well. And so coming from that history background initially was, I think, really important for my approach to space law and the aerospace industry writ large is because I always look back at the historical references because by and large, a lot of these ideas get recycled. People make little animations. I mean, yeah, Elon did, did great with the Falcon 9, but if he didn't have, again, these processors, this would all be a pipe dream. So you merge the old and the new, and I think that's that's why I give Elon props. But we have to understand that this this isn't something like we were given, you know, by Moses and tablets for. You know, this is this is just we've discovered these things through trial and error, and a lot of error, and we have to recognize that error. And I think history is is, is one of the the best mediums to to measure that that error. But I was fortunate enough after that to end up working in the Office of Space and Advanced Technology at the U.S. State Department. Eventually, you know, I, I made my way to Bigelow Aerospace after law school. So uh, I've seen different, you know, I've seen the academic side. I've, I've seen um, the executive branch side. Before, I didn't do space stuff, but, you know, I interned for Senator Feinstein. And so I've had experiences, I think, that most people usually don't 
torture themselves through because anyone who's, who's filled out these applications for any of these types of internships knows how brutal they are. And since, you know, I, I had to realize early on when I moved to DC that I was going to be a career intern for at least for the foreseeable future until I could find my opportunity, you know, it, it works. Now, obviously you want to find the ones that are paid or at least the ones that give you the great perks. You know, luckily for me, when I was at state department, I, I got to be a U.S. delegation to copious uh, among you know other opportunities I got from that experience. But you know, these, these things are very unique experiences and I've tried to relay those experiences to the people that have asked me and asked me for, for advice and, you know, what's this all about? And it, it's hard to come, especially to DC into the, into the pit of policymaking and understand what you're looking at, right? You know, unless you pick up a space policy textbook, you wouldn't even imagine that, oh, well, people generally view space as separated into three issue areas, commercial, civil, and military. Oh, okay. What does that mean? What is civil and what's military? You know, what's commercial, what's not military? And space law will give you a little bit of an answer to that. And economics will give you a little bit of an answer to that. And general law, like U.S. law, will give you an answer to that. But understanding how this all fits together in context and, and, and understanding that it's not just about NASA, then I think that gives the right direction to a perspective about what space law is and what and where it is going. And I think that's the other fundamental question because, you know, like I said, you can come up with a million definitions likely and you'll have overlap on most, but where is this all going? Because if, you know, if, if we're just going to screw this up and it's just going to be governments doing stuff, then space law is just public international law. What makes it special? Because countries are doing it in space, like I don't, it doesn't mean anything to me. But if we have a future where more people can participate and more people can take advantage of the benefits of space, more than just using GPS and making sure that their app is connected to the financial financial institution to process a payment, or to use YouTube or anything, I mean, it's more than that, and. Uh, I think it first starts, and I know we have a lot of people that we know in the industry that do great work on the education side, and I think that's where it starts, you know, getting young people educated. For me, I was lucky enough to live about a mile away from JPL growing up, and so in high school, I, my mom would take me to the open house, and, you know, I would collect all the free posters, and I'd watch how many times they dipped the tennis ball into um, liquid nitrogen and then throw it on the floor and watch it shatter, you know. I think, it, you know, it, as someone who, I mean, I didn't grow up in means by any uh, measure. I mean, I was in, in extreme poverty, but I didn't have a lot of the opportunities that most of my friends had. And so making the best of that, I think is important. And that's why I think it's, it's, it's great to see NASA come up with these great educational programs. But I think more importantly is you have PBS and YouTube and all these new media for young people to absorb all this information. I mean, for me, it's the information was still the same as it was when I was 12. But if I had access to YouTube when I was 12, I mean, that's the thing. Like we're all sitting here. Anyone born after 1996 or something like that um, is going to have no concept of the internet. But for us, it's like, you know, it, it's imagine if we had superpowers. Yeah. What was your superpower? Absolute knowledge, instant knowledge. Okay, great. What are we going to call it? Google. Okay. 
<laughs> Yahoo, <laughs> Jeeves, <laughs> whatever. But you know, that's that's the thing. And now knowing that these resources exist, I think the trick is getting more people to be aware of it. And I think that's that's the next bit. And I think that's the next bit that not only the industry, I think not only is starting to address, uh, and certainly you have things like the Brooks Owens Fellowship and yeah, the Matazakowitz, sorry, uh, Fellowship. Young people are, have way more avenues into space than they ever did when I was younger or even 15 years ago for that matter. I think it's important for, for people in the industry to go to their schools, go to their junior highs, their high schools, their elementary schools, their colleges or junior colleges, and let people know that the industry exists. Let them know that space law exists if you happen to care about space law, because it's important. And if you care about rights and you care about accountability and you care about exploration and science and you and you care about the future of of our species because we could just stay on this damn planet and blow ourselves up to hell if we want but that's not what i want for our for my children and and you know i'm a little over a month being a father like i want to make sure that space is accessible to everyone and that has to start with not only the practice the practical elements to it, but also maintaining the rights, which is where I think the law always has to fit in and make sure that your rights are are protected and defined because there are a lot of people that will take them away. And, and it really doesn't matter why they want to. But if you want to be able to have the freedom to go into space, we need to have that conversation now because otherwise people with more money and more power are going to define the conversation. So, yeah. That's what I'm going to say about that. Well, in terms of making sure that people and society are having the right conversation, what do you think is the biggest misconception that the general public has about space law? Well, I, I think first the whole issue is just the conception of space law. Space you know, as an environment that's out there and rests sort of in uh, our popular culture and and science fiction and fantasy may not be the sexiest thing to sell. I mean, when you're selling really a vacuum, <laughs> but, but, you know, selling what NASA has to sell, right. Which is exploration and science, but that's not what the law does. Right. And it's not there to sell itself. It's there to be there when you need it. It's built into the foundation of, of your own personal activities. What recourses do you have if someone, you know, takes away your rights what do you what remedies do you have things like that but the 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 general misconception i think is one that again space is special but fundamentally that without it it wouldn't allow you to live in today's world and understand that it is a critical infrastructure and i think that's what needs to be said over and over again that that space Space law is the legal protection of the critical infrastructure of our, of our planet or of the United States economy, depending on who you're talking to. It is a vital part of our industrial base. The industry produces tremendous benefits, tremendous talents. It attracts so many bright young people. There's so many things going on 
but there's only so much time, so much money and so many things to be able to, to do it all. And that's why I think there are opportunities, especially for, for young people to look to the future and say, well, what, what hasn't someone done? And they don't know how to ask the question if they don't know that those are their options, right? You know, it's like the, the, the question you get asked in high school, are you going to go to college? And if so, you know, what are you going to do? Or what are you going to do after high school? You're going to go to college. What are you going to do? How would I possibly know what to do if I don't know what my choices are? And if my entire life is limited by narrow choices, you know, that's a travesty because space should be inspiring. And I think that there were so many avenues to space, so many avenues to space law in particular, um, that you don't have to go and get two master's degree and a law degree to be a part of it. Sometimes that just takes, all it takes is you to send an email or shake someone's hand at a conference and ask them a question and to, to think for yourself for a minute and say, well, what can I do? What would I like to do? Because unfortunately there are a lot of young bright people in the space industry that just don't have good mentors. And it's nice that, that these fellowships are coming along now, but again, they weren't there when I was there, but we have to make sure that the people know that they exist. Otherwise we, we become stagnant as an industry as a profession, as a group of people who care about what happens uh, in space and to have the freedom to go into space. I think uh, understanding the importance of it in your daily life is the only way to get around any sort of misconception in the general public about space law. And along those lines, talking about you know the need for the industry and the, the people who do know about it not stagnating, um, is there a misconception in the industry? Is there a stagnant idea that hasn't gone away that maybe should go away to those who should know better? Yeah, that's a loaded question. Yeah, I know. I, w- I wanted to, you know, you don't have to call anybody out. You don't have to name names. I was going to ask you if I can get a lifeline. I was going to call Jack Bauer <laughs> to defuse this question, but um, I think he'd just screw it up. Yeah, I, I think one one thing would be this is this almost like I, I've been in different meetings, I, I, in different settings where I've seen this push and pull of, well, space is hard, but we're going to do all it. And again, I, I, I worry about that type of rhetoric because it clouds the complexity of what we're trying to do. I know it's not a great mark, you know. It, it, it's hard to, to market something that's complex like space and you can break it down into its piecemeal sizes, but there's so much bad information. And we all know when we read popular this or that, or whatever trade press we read where, where something is sort of puffed up b- beyond where it should be. And I get that that's part of business and you got to sell it. And that's also part of, of driving people to, to change their minds about things, about what's possible. But at the same time, we all know that there's just there's a certain set of ideas that are just so recycled, that are so just either impractical or bad, but we suffer through them nonetheless, and we go through them, and in private, we find some way to justify them, and I'm honestly so sick of it, because really what that's telling me, it's like a symptom of a social problem with how we go about policymaking, I think, to a large degree. 
And I don't know if there are cosmetic remedies because I think some of the problems are so structural that you need a change in thought about how we organize for space. And if not internationally, at least within the United States. Is there, is there something in space development? Is there a project or is there an opportunity on the horizon that you get really excited about? Yeah, actually, yeah, there's, there's, there's a few. So at least from an in, industry point of view, I'm very excited to see what Virgin and Blue are about to do. I do believe from, from looking at their, their, their testing and you know, knowing their, their, their folks over there, that they're very close and I think that's going to be really exciting. I think once they really start getting off the ground, certainly, and then obviously with SpaceX, the heavy lift testing, the Dragon uh, crew testing, there's a lot of things on the horizon that I think should give everyone a sense of excitement that this is, this is actually kind of what we've been looking for. These are, these are the signs we're looking for. Thank you very much, Chris, uh, for taking the time to chat with me on the record. Uh, and for being my first guest. Oh, well, thank you for, for inviting me. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to a very successful uh, Astro Esquire podcast from you. Excellent. And you even said my uh, name twice. So that's perfect. Thank you for listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. Thank you.